0: Thank you, Eli. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for that uh, wonderful music, which is a closing for 2023. Man, where in the world did the time go? Just appreciate that great reminder. Those hymns are just a great reminder of our striving toward holiness, striving toward our God, striving to live out what it is that we believe in terms of what God's Word has for us forever and ever. You know, I'm in the back over there, right? First hour and second hour, same thing. I can look and I can see all your faces and I can tell that you're festive and full of cheese Unsure of life right now. You're probably a little tired, aren't you? It's been a pretty busy week, perhaps a busy Christmas. Perhaps you've been traveling. Who was traveling? Anyone did any? I, we were doing travel, traveling. And uh, we, we got back last night from New York, visiting family. And I am feeling festive and full of cheese. I'll do the best I can to minister the word of God to you today, <laughs> happens every year, right? I really do hope that you had a blessed Christmas and soon to be New Year. Which is, I mean, I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't know about you all. I'm going right to bed. So, but man, it just—it's—it's it's just amazing where the time went. Um, man, it, it, Christmas is come and gone. This year's come and gone. I mean, just—just just like that, just like the wind. You know, I think our lives are really reflective of that, wouldn't you say? Here today, gone, tomorrow. You remember the things that you did when you were younger, and then next thing you know, you're older and you look back, and you're a bit more reflective on things, right? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, C.T. Studd said. And so as we reflect on our lives and... The living hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe it's imperative for us to not only live and delight in our justification before God and Christ, but to work hard in excelling and continuing to excel still more in the faith once and for all, delivered to the saints so far as we live and breathe and have our being in Him. And so, what does a picture of a servant of God um, look like? There are many pictures in Scripture. But today I want to look at Psalm 15. I want to look at a picture of God's servant for 2024. I just want to get right to the point. No point, and I know perhaps, perhaps some of you have some New Year's resolutions. Just know that your salvation isn't a New Year's resolution. It's something that began for you the moment you were saved, and so you were resolved every day. At least the goal of the Christian life is, is to be resolved every day and every waking hour of our life to bear more fully... Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? And so what does a picture of God's servant look like? And today I just want to give us just four truths for the servant of God pursuing integrity in 2024. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 15. Psalm 15 verse verses 1 to 5. Pretty short Psalm. Psalm 15 verses 1 to 5. Let me just go ahead and set the stage by reading it. Can we do that? Psalm 15 verses 1, to 5, a Psalm of David. And he starts off and he says, Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors the Lord, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who he swears to his own hurt and does not change, Verse 5, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And then it says this at the end, it says, he who does these things will never be shaken. Oh, Lord of heaven, this is a portrait of the servant of God. This is the portrait of, of our striving upon seeing the cross of Christ and being changed. Lord, we... Strive to be a more holy people. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. And thank you for continuing to work in us. Please finish the work, Lord, that you began in us upon the salvation that you have granted to us. Now help us to get a glimpse of your word this morning, Lord. I'm um, Perhaps some are tired today and have a hard time reflecting on a lot of things, perhaps. Perhaps they haven't had a good Christmas, or whatever it may be, whatever's going on in their minds, Lord, help them to focus, help me to focus, and just help us, Lord, just to get perhaps a couple truths, really, to live out our Christian life and to strive toward excellence in our walk. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's get to, right to the point, and let's just look at verse 1. Again, I just read it to you, but... I want to start off and say that our God is a God of integrity. Wouldn't you agree? Our God is a God of integrity. Notice what David said in verse 1. We just read that, really. Oh, Lord. And he says, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Our God is a God of integrity. God is characterized by holiness. Can I just put it a different way? How about I say it this way? God is Holiness. Yes? God is holiness. When we talk about the fact that God is holy, we're talking about a particular attribute that describes who he is. That's, that's an attribute of God. We're talking about a quality or an attribute that describe or describes who God is. Now we know that God is the sum of his attributes, and holiness is just one of them described for us in Scripture. And getting a glimpse of our God, well, then you ask the next question. Well, what does holiness mean? What does holiness mean? Well, holiness, it simply means to be set apart. To set apart. That is to say, God, by virtue of who He is, is set apart from His. Creation. You could say it to say, God is holy other than me. Yeah? God is holy other than his people. He's different than us. You see? That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be holy. Holy means to be set apart. The word saints, by the way, is another word to be set apart. You are Christians, yes? You have been saved. Yes, if you have been saved, you are a saint. You are a set-apart one by God. Heaven is suited for God because it is his dwelling place. It's his home. It is a place that's set apart for him. He made it that way. It's suited for his holy angels. It's also suited for those who are saints, Christians, holy ones, set apart ones. And so when David says, who may abide in your tent, who may abide in your holy hill, yes? Who may abide in heaven? That's what he has in mind. Who may abide in heaven? Who has access to that place which is set apart? Who has access into heaven, who may abide there, who may abide in heaven, the place where righteousness dwells, a place that is for all intents and purposes set apart or suitable to the conditions and standard that God has set in place, not just for himself, but for the people of faith, for the people of faith. One hymn writer said that within your tabernacle, Lord, who shall abide with thee? And in your high and holy hill, who shall the dweller be? And if God has saved you, it follows he has set you apart. If he has set you apart, it follows that God's servants would be like him. He requires his people to be like him. Perhaps a good illustration of this is Moses in the Exodus. Perhaps some of you may not remember all the details. I don't think you have to remember all the details of the Exodus, but I could just give you the big picture. Remember what God did during the Exodus, perhaps? You have this supernatural display of power by God when he removed Israel out of Egypt. Remember that big picture? They were Egypt, really, was the superpower in the Middle East of that day. But understand that nothing will stop our God from making His people holy. But once they were out of Egypt, then God begins the process of getting Egypt out of His people. And so God had to begin to 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 teach them to think differently. That's another way you could say. To He had set He set them apart so that their thinking is different from the way they used to think. He had to teach them to think differently, to act differently, out of the sea of nations to which they were taken out of. They were taken out of Egypt. And then he began to bathe them in the word of God. And it's through the development of time he provided for them. He gave them the word, the inscripturated word of God through the hand of Moses called the Torah, the five books of Moses. You have Genesis. He gave them the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, where we came from. Exodus referring to their redemption and deliverance from Egypt, their history. And then you have this peculiar book, which no one likes to read, is the book of Leviticus. (laughs) But it's interesting because If you look at the big picture of Leviticus, it is God teaching his people to be holy. It's instruction for holy. The big picture of Leviticus is God's instruction for holy living, teaching his people how to think differently, because the way they're thinking in Egypt was not the way they should be thinking now. And then you had Numbers. Oh, Numbers. Numbers pertaining to a history of the wandering in the wilderness. When you think numbers, you think wandering and entering into the promised land. And then you have Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is, is a good book because it is a reference to remembering. Because we are a forgetful people, right? Israel is also where they're, they're fallen just like us, right? And so we tend to forget things. And so the book of Deuteronomy is written so that they will remember their history. Remembering the law, remembering where they came from, how to live as a portrait of God's servant, Psalm 15. How? I need you to remember Deuteronomy. And you have all these books which are important for God's people to learn how to live a life of sobriety. But most importantly, to learn how to live as a servant of God. So God speaks to Moses, the leader of Israel. And he says to this leader, Moses, he says... Moses, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel. Say to them, and you've just heard the word, you shall be set apart. (laughs) You shall be holy. Why? Purpose clause. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. And what God requires is not burdensome, really, especially in light of his promises to complete the work in which he began in you and I. That requirement is to live in holiness, not without, it's not without, I would say, it's not without God's enabling power wrought about by the Holy Spirit of promise who resides in us, which is really hope for you and I, because left to ourselves, we are a people most to be pitied. And notice what God said to his people in the next chapter, in Leviticus chapter 20. He says, you shall consecrate yourselves. Therefore, and be what? There it is again, holy, set apart. Purpose clause four, for the reason that I am holy, for the reason that the Lord your God is holy. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who what? Sanctifies you. Think of that as something that continues to go. I, I am the Lord who continues to sanctify you. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Our progress in sanctification is what Christians and theologians in history have called this word called synergism. Synergism. Progressive sanctification is synergistic. It's synergistic. I'll explain that in a little bit. But you need to understand that that has absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. My salvation, your salvation is here 's another theological word here monarchistic Monar- I am teaching you theology, folks. I am teaching you to th- eat cheese, eat theological, good cheese. I am teaching you good theology, monarchistic. Some of you may remember the hymn. this is the way that I like to illustrate things sometimes by using illustrations either from the scriptures or from a hymn. some of you may how do we, how can we remember this? monergistic word. Well, how about this? Amazing grace. Remember that hymn, How Sweet the Sound that saved a wretch like me? I was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Salvation comes from where? You know it. It comes from who? I'm going to pull a Hulk Hogan on you. Salvation comes from who? God. It's okay. I know you're full of cheese and festive and full of life. You can say God. God, right? Salvation comes from above. It comes from God. Even when I'm pulling my arm up here, I'm just like, it comes from God. God help me please say the word salvation is monergistic it comes only from god it's not something that you or i could muster up it's not you it's not what we do or don't do that makes us right with god it's what jesus did for us on the cross salvation is from above it's monas alone christ alone monergistic it comes from above God alone saved me by his grace. God justified me through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross alone. As as Jonathan Edwards would say, that you and I contributed nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. (laughs) But when it comes to progressive sanctification, when it comes to the progress of changing, when it comes to the progress of growing to be like Christ, Pay attention now. We work out what he works in. We work out what he works in. Synergistic. And if you, you think, um, David, you, that doesn't sound right. Well, how about Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13? So there's this work out. This is one of those things which is which is called a Anyway, let me just keep reading it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it says this. For it is who? God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, if we say we are born from above, monargistic, then that salvation will come alive in its living. Synergistic. See that? If I make a profession to say that I am a believer in Jesus Christ, then it will show itself because it becomes alive in my living. That is what it means to be born from above. I am born from above and I show the works of a changed life. That's the fruit. That's the works. The works of a changed life. The works of salvation that was wrought originally in the believer by Christ alone. And now I am striving... To strip off those sucker branches that retard my growth in him. We have weaknesses, right? We have (coughs) potholes of resistance. Stubbornness. Because we still have a fallen body which has not yet been redeemed. But there's new desires and passions in us. Upon believing in Christ and wanting to live for him. Our outlook on life begins to change. Everything begins to change because... Why we work out what he works in. The ground for my striving, the ground for our striving in salvation is based on God working in us what we are working out. This is the servant of God. This is why we're looking at Psalm 15. And so then our God is marked by holiness, he's marked by integrity. He called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, meaning as God's servants, God sets us apart. Out of the nations, just like he did with Israel, he, sets, he, he He saves us out of the nations to be a people for himself. We are what? We are, you say it this way, we are called unto holiness, as one hymn writer would say, church of our God, purchase of Jesus, redeemed by his blood, Called from the world and its idols to flee, called from the bondage of sin to be free. Who may abide in heaven? The psalmist says. The answer is to those who can abide and attend and live in, or those who go to heaven are those who have been born from above. There's the answer. Who can abide in your holy hill? Who can abide in heaven, O oh God? those who have been born from above, those who have been marked out by a changed life. You see, our integrity is a mark of the whole person. Our changed life is the mark of the whole person. Verse 2, the psalmist says, he gives you the answer, he who walks with integrity, notice the participles, walks, works, speaks. He who walks with integrity, works righteousness, speaks truth, In his heart, King David has in mind lip and life qualities. That's kind of a tongue tangler. (laughs) I'm going to mess that one up. You wait for it. I'm so full of cheese. King David has in mind lip and life qualities, meaning our profession will match our conduct, albeit imperfectly. David understands. He understands that we're imperfect people. He's an, he's an imperfect person. I mean, you, you read the story in and, and the Chronicles of David's life, you see he was in, an imperfect person. He understood that. That's why he put participles there. That's why he deliberately did that. He understood that, I'll explain that. He understood that we were a fallen people, and he expressed it in the verse, and we will see more of that in a moment. But understand that, that when we look at our works, our works communicate, That we have been born from above and that this world is no longer our home life and lip qualities. Life and lip qualities. And in our moments of being with other believers, in the family of faith, may our prayer be to enable us to communicate with our lips and lives the truth born out of the heart of Psalm 15. That ought to be our daily prayer. Lord, enable me to walk with integrity Enable us to work out what is right. Enable us to speak truths out of a heart that is born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have James, the half-brother of our Lord, knew that our works demonstrated a changed life, a changing life. And so when you see David in verse 2, he who walks and works, and speaks the truth in his heart, the reason why he puts participles there, I was like, "Dave, what's a participle? Well, it's been a while. Bear with me. (laughs) Participles really are just demonstrating just some action that's ongoing. Ongoing, right? So it's not the, the, I'll say it this way, it's not the perfection of your life, right? You didn't just get saved and just zap, I'm perfect. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? That's not how the Lord works. Okay? In heaven we will be perfect. But He changed us, He saved us, and we are now participles. Ch- a changed life. It's not the perfection of your life, it's the direction of your life. Going up. You'll still have divots, still have pockets of resistance, stubbornness. I want to change in this area. Oh, he promised to change you. He promised, Philippians 1. He that began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He promised to change our stubborn hearts. And we would love it so because we want to change, right? We pray, Lord, please help me to change in this particular area. I I don't really want to change in this area because I'm stubborn. I'm lazy in this particular area. Lord, grant me a heart of repentance so that I... A change in said area or weakness in my life because I'm striving after you, striving after Christ. Our works communicate that we've been born from above. I had mentioned James, a half-brother of our Lord. He knew that our works demonstrated a changed life. He knew that there were those who did, in fact, profess Christ but it was very difficult to tell at all that they were born from above because their life and lip qualities did not at all communicate Psalm 15. He couldn't tell at all that they were set apart by God from amongst the unregenerate nation that they were nations that they were taken out of. And so he wrote about this, and he says in James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, prove yourselves what? Doers. That's an action word, Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who what? Who delude themselves. If all you are is a hearer and not a, do, and not a doer, you're deluding yourself. Your profession isn't real. You're deluding yourself and perhaps even others. Prove yourself doers of the word. And the fact that James said to be doers of the word of the word was proof positive that the entire personality is to be characterized in this way. James picked up on what Christ said in Matthew 7. Remember what, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me what? Lord, Lord. They were hearers, but not doers. Many who say to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? He who is a doer. He who does who? the will of my Father Who is in heaven will enter. And just as a footnote, being a doer of the Word of God demonstrates an overflow of a changed life set apart by God. I want to emphasize it's not what I do or don't do that makes me right with God. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And upon believing and surrendering your heart over to Christ, you bear the result of the works of a changed life. Your life will change. If you truly surrendered your heart over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you will change because he is working in you to change. So you have our works. And then you know, then we have our hearts, right? We have our hearts. Our hearts spring forth the issues of life, as one psalm would put it. Our hearts spring forth the issues of life, which is why we are told to be diligent in working out what God is working in us. Is it any wonder why our Lord excoriated the Pharisees? I mean, He excoriated them. In Matthew chapter 23, He, I mean, just ripped them one up and down. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You cleaned the outside of the cup. In the dish, but inside they're full of robbery, self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, for clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, woe to you. Seven to eight woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, because all they, all they had was in external, nothing internal. They, was, they weren't saved. It was all lip service. It was all lip service. And if that is what a person is characterized by that our profession doesn't make a lick of sense whatsoever. It doesn't make a lick of sense by any stretch of the imagination because we don't look at all like servants of God on the inside. You might be able to fool others, but you won't be able to fool God. We don't act like servants of God, let alone bear out the living waters of Psalm 15. We're not walking with integrity. We're not working out righteousness in our lives. We're not bearing out the truths of our profession from our hearts. And please note that it's interesting because while Psalm 15 portrays a servant of God, there is another psalm that actually portrays a psalm of a wicked man. And that's actually Psalm 14. You ought to take a look at Psalm 15. Because Psalm 15 is mirror opposite. It displays a portrait of the ungodly man, It's a portrait of life and lip service, but in the opposite direction. It's a service of a different kind. If you were to look at Psalm 14, I'm not asking you to look at it right now, but I can just walk you through it. Remember how Psalm 14, once it goes out, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? Verse one, they don't believe God. They live as if there is no God. Those people are practical atheists. All it is is, Practical atheist. Verse 2 and 3, they live, their lives are characterized by deceit and corruption. Verse 4, they are incredibly selfish people who are good at taking advantage of and, and exploiting God's people to their own ends. These people are described as, quote, eating up my people as they eat bread. Wow. One of my professors looked at the psalm and, <laughs> in, in seminary and described them. Um, as blood sucking leeches. These people are blood sucking leeches. That's what he said. Some of these people, they learn the truth of God, but it never comes alive in their living. It never comes alive in their living. But they see the many blessings in the church. And they take advantage of God's people and they exploit them because they understand that God's people have love in their hearts and they exploit it. And they are described as, in 1st, well, 2nd Timothy, rather, chapter 3, always learning. They come to church and they're always learning. And they never come to an understanding or a knowledge of the truth of God. And then verse 5 and through 7 says of Psalm 14, These people God is not with. God is not with at all. He's not with them. And Psalm 15 would be the mirror opposite. God is with these people. God is with these people. Our relationships will display our level of integrity. Our relationships will display our level of integrity. Notice in verses 3 and 5, listen to what he says. says, This is what it looks like. He doesn't slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend. It's just characteristics. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He He doesn't put out his money at interest, nor... Does he take a bribe against the innocent? Do you see that? Do you see that how our relationship with God is tied to our behavior? By the way, it's not the perfection of our life. It's the direction of our life. Think participle. (laughs) Right? David knows that Christians can and still sin, even grievously. But God will never leave that person in that position for long. Our relationship is tied to our God. And the way David describes this is by, again, he uses participles all throughout that psalm. This is, these are character qualities. Not perfect, qual- but character growing qualities. Growing qualities. Meaning God's people will make it their aim to display consistent behavior, not intermittent behavior. See the difference? Consistent behavior, not intermittent behavior. Intermittent meaning sporadic, you know, here and there behavior, will be more of a reflective of Psalm 14. Psalm 15 is a a reflection of someone who was consistent, not perfect, consistent. He's a consistent portion of God's holy people, making it a consistent ambition in life, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Christ, called unto holiness, children of light, walking with Jesus in garments of white. Raiments unsullied, untarnished with sin, God's Holy Spirit abiding within. That's the reason why. That's the reason why. These saints, you saints, you see your frame. I see my frame, you see your frame. And we are mindful, as the psalmist would put it, that we are but dust. Yet we make it our aim to please the one who saved us and he enables us through the power of his Holy Spirit who dwells in his people out of love, Verse 3, to make it our aim not to slander with our tongues. This person makes it his ambition, or even her ambition, to not gossip by trafficking information to another person who is not a part of the problem or the solution to the problem, thus tearing a person down. In that sense, verse 3, he doesn't doesn't do evil to his neighbor. He makes it his aim or her aim to serve his neighbor with, with wisdom, so far as it depends on him, verse three, he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. He doesn't want to harm his fellow man. In other words, he doesn't want to fell, he, he doesn't want to, to harm or she doesn't want to harm this fellow image bearer. Even though this person isn't saved, wants to make it his or her aim to to serve this person. That's the goal. Not perfect. I mean, it sort of goes along the lines of Galatians chapter six ten. It says we. So then while we have opportunity, let us what? Do good to all people? You see that borne out at the at the a number of the outreach ministries here that we have at Faith Church. And then you have the outreach, you have the people who are outside of the church looking at the church and saying, why are they doing it? Why are they doing these good things for us? That's literally some of the questions that they ask. Why are you doing these things? And then we bear the opportunity to bear Christ, who is the hope of glory. He changed me, and I know he can change you. We're able to show love that way. Not perfect love, but love nonetheless. Why do we do these things? Why do, we, at least why do we make it our aim to do these things? Because we're called unto holiness. Praise his dear name. This blessed secret to faith now made plain. Not our own unrighteousness, but Christ within, living and reigning and saving from sin. Now land your mind to verse 4. To verse 4 we just read, verse 3, the goal of which we make it our aim to not do the things described of with reference to our neighbor because the reprobate do those things and are despised by God. Verse 4, in whose eyes the reprobate is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not Change. David is referring to a vile person who is described for us here. A person who does not fear God has really no regard or remorse for their actions toward another. God has rejected that person. But to those who fear the Lord, God will keep their word. He, God will keep his word rather to them. And that person will keep his word even if it hurts him. Well, what in the world does that mean? How does he swear to his own hurt? Ever make a promise you, you didn't keep? <laughs> That's what it is. I mean, perhaps a good illustration of this is seen in the life of a man called Amaziah. Amaziah, almost done. He was the king of Judah, and in Second Chronicles chapter twenty-five, we read about this man. We read that Judah. This was when the kingdoms the kingdoms were separate. You have Israel is up to the north and Judah to the south, and they're separate. Sin had separated separated them. Judah was about to come against the Edomites. The Edomites had threatened them. And so this man, Amaziah, he's the king of Judah. He goes up to Israel. He goes up north to Israel and he is asking help from his people. And so he forms a coalition with them and he he gives them 100 talents of money. That's a lot of money. Okay. It's a lot of money. And so the problem was this. Israel was steeped in idolatry. I mean steeped in idolatry at this time. And so God sends a man of God, a prophet to Amaziah, and he says to them this in verse 7. He says, "O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel nor with any of the sons of Ephraim." Uh-oh. So what is this king now to do? He, he can't get help from his own brethren. So what does he do? And he already gave him money, like a lot of money. And so he asked this man of God, he's like, he says in verse 9, but what about my money? That's what, he, that's, what he, that's what he said. And notice the response of the prophet. I'll just read it to you. He says, The Lord has much more to give you than this. Amaziah wanted his money back. That's what he wanted. He already made certain promises. But he realized that the promise was foolish. And now what do I do with my money? How do I get the money back? And so the man of God says: Cut your losses. Cut your losses and keep your word. Cut your losses. I know it hurts. Keep your word. Keep your word. And Messiah made a promise. But he had to trust the Lord even to his own hurt, even if he lost a lot of money, and he lost a lot of money, and the Lord returned to him what he had lost twofold. But the application is God's service to please Christ. Even if we agree to something, let our yes be yes, right? Doesn't the scripture say say that? Let our yes be yes and our no be no, because anything beyond this is what? It's from the evil one. Let's do our best to make it a better practice to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Let's keep our word so far as it depends on us, even if it hurts. Our stability in life is linked to our integrity, is linked to our integrity Notice what he says here. He who does these things will never be shaken. In other words, if you make it a a practice to be that servant of God, he who does these things will never be shaken. I knew a person in law enforcement when I was in law enforcement in Maryland. I knew a person who was, I mean, I hate to say it, was a vile person. This person worked in law enforcement. This person developed a very bad reputation. And the people knew it but they couldn't do much about it. Well, there was an occasion where this person had gotten hurt on the job, and it was unfortunate that it happened, but some had tried to raise money for this person, and they barely raised anything, I mean, scratched anything. I mean, it was was really just pennies. I mean, it was pretty depressing. But then there was another officer who was a follower of Christ. This person cared deeply for people. He would visit people even to pray for them, and there was an opportunity to, whenever he had opportunity to do so. And it also came to pass, interestingly enough, that he had gotten hurt on the job pretty severely. And so they raised support for this officer, and they were able to raise three months of support for himself and his family. He had enough to pay his bills, had enough to, to, for food on the table for his family, but his reputation became so great with the years that he had worked there that, the, that he developed a community of friends amongst unbelievers. And they deeply respected this person. When they found that he had gotten hurt, they said, we've got to help this man. This man has helped us and if come alongside us and prayed with us. Unbelievers, we want to help this man. And they raised three months of support, three months of support, It's amazing, just the contrast. A portrait of a man, every servant of God who just wanted to serve Christ imperfectly, but he did it. Take a look at verse, oh, we already looked at that. We're coming to the end here. What do we say to all these things? That when you have a trial, you ought to consider it joy because the trial that you are facing, you and I are facing, is for our testing. It's producing something in us. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word for perfect means mature. You bear maturity through the trial. The trial shapes you. It molds you. It matures you. It matures you. Well, I'll close by saying this because I know perhaps some of you are full of cheese, sleepy, right? Who may ascend to heaven, King David asks in Psalm 15. Well, those who are holy, those who are set apart, those who have been set apart for God through through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who have repented and had their sins forgiven, those who have turned away from their sins and have been born from above and desire and want to change and live for Christ, those individuals will have heaven granted to them as a reward. And if there's any person who has not yet confessed their sins over to Christ, you know, this day could be your day of salvation. Psalm 15 is, is for you. The cross is for you. Heaven is for you. Your inheritance is something that we all don't deserve, but Christ gives it to you freely. And he is pleased to grant you and give you the kingdom of his Father. Called unto holiness... O glorious thought up from the wilderness, wandering brought out from the shadows and darkness of night into the Canaan of perfect delights called unto holiness, bride of the lamb waiting, the bridegroom's returning again, lift up your heads for the day draws near when in his beauty, the king shall appear and he will appear and we will be with him forever and ever. On a new heaven and a new earth, I said that before, you do know we're going to come back here to this earth, right? And it will be a great time of reunion for all of us. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day. Lord, I know that <laughs> we're a little bit tired from Christmas and the week. Lord, grant us renewed strength. Lord, help us to live out um, holiness in our lives, Lord because of what you've done for us on the cross. Continue to change us, Lord, and just help us to just enjoy life and to to love people and to just serve you with all of our might. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.